I think that's a great question. That's really the question of the moment. And I think a little bit embedded in your question is this tug of war between employer and employees around hybrid work and time in the office, et cetera. And part of the control reaction of organizations is that they actually don't have a workflow for what they do. If there was actually a transparent workflow, organizations would be less control oriented around their employees. This is the shift that I think progressive leaders will make because rather than saying, oh, I need to you know, see you face to face around this conference table very frequently, they're comfortable with other ways of collaborating. Hey, everyone, welcome to the future of collaboration, where we're exploring the future of work through new developments in generative AI and large language models, the headwinds in the tech industry, and more effective collaboration in a remote and hybrid world. I'm Eli Woolery, Senior Director of Collaboration at Envision. Hello, and I am Ariel Band, Head of Global Account Management at Envision. And today, we're very excited to introduce, we're interviewing Atif Rafiq, former Chief Digital Officer at Volvo and McDonald's, former president at MGM Resorts International, and author of Decision Sprint, a Wall Street Journal bestselling book about innovating into the unknown and moving from strategy to action. We discuss his book and how it can help leaders embrace workflows that convert unknowns to clear recommendations. We also chat with Adif about strategies for leaders to manage the number of tools and work environments that companies are now juggling, the risks that they should keep an eye out for as they leverage AI, and when to pause and make time for upstream work. Hope you enjoy the show. At Envision, we're obsessed with helping teams do their best work together. With Freehand's intelligent canvas and smart workflows, teams are already working to maximize their productivity and remove all of those hurdles and silos that seem to stop us focusing on the real work. With Freehand AI, we're excited to help teams go further. You can reclaim all that time spent synthesizing brainstorms and messy work plans and focus on making impactful decisions. With a single click, you can summarize your ideas and bring teammates up to speed or take all of those great ideas and create a schedule of work. Take brainstorms and turn them into briefs or analyze sentiment, helping you read between the lines. To unlock true productivity, everyone on the team must be able to engage. That's why we're focused on making Freehand the easiest to use visual collaboration platform, where Canvas connectors allow you to create and fine tune AI prompts to fit your team's workflow. And templates allow you to flexibly deploy AI enabled workflows across your teams. And at 50% the price of Miro and Mural, your entire organization can benefit from the productivity gains that AI introduces. It's time to supercharge your team's workflow. Try Freehand AI on Freehand at freehandapp.com. Atif Rafiq, welcome to the future of collaboration. Eli, it's a pleasure to join you. Really good to be here. I'm here with my co-host, Ariel. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me today, Eli. Of course. So we're going to talk about your book here in a minute, Atif, but you've had a long and really interesting career at some pretty high levels at some very large companies. So maybe just before we dive into the book, 
walk us through your the, the kind of nickel tour of your career arc. Yeah, sure. I've had a couple metamorphoses. I started very all early on in the internet and in pure digital companies like Yahoo and Amazon. And I thought I'd do that for the entirety of my career. But in 2013, about 10 years ago, something changed in the world and every company started to view themselves as a tech company in some way, shape or form, or potentially to be disrupted by tech. So at that time I had an opportunity and I decided to become the first chief digital officer in the history of the Fortune 500. I took on that role at McDonald's, working for their CEO. And this was very fundamental in influencing what I'm working on now because I was writing the cultural fault line between Silicon Valley, which is all about new ideas and pivoting quickly and more traditional businesses, which because of their, they're so successful, they're more about incrementalism. At the same time at uh, McDonald's in that case and others I work for, incrementalism wasn't going to cut it. So I had to find a way to get the elephants to dance. And that's a really big part of uh, what I spent the next 10 years doing is trying, making attempts, some failed, uh, making mistakes, but also learning in the process. How do you get the collaboration and organization to really be open, not only to open ideas, but have the ways to get those ideas to translate into actions and, and results. So I, I like that term, getting the elephants to dance. It brings up a nice visual. <laughs> okay. So you've got this career moving through these large companies and helping them do going through periods of transformation. And then you decide to write this book. What brought about the idea and why is that? Why now? In terms of now, it's actually perfect timing for a few reasons. One is companies are looking for more purposeful innovation. If you roll back two years ago, capital was flowing freely. So even if you're the mighty Google, you could do a lot of uh, blank check experimentation and just see what comes out of that. But every CEO, even in tech, or in fact, especially in tech, is looking for what I call purposeful innovation, which is <clears throat> things that are more likely to produce the results faster and where they can more confidently support these ideas. Now, <clears throat> in the end, that does come down to the collaboration. And the reason for that is because no man or woman is an island. And we all know that the lone genius is not really a thing in, in, in terms of helping a company get somewhere with seeing impact on an idea, but it does take the collective intelligence of the organization and the collaboration can either slow that down, diminish it, or really tap into it. And so that's where, if I roll back to my 10 year journey, just to share a quick story, when I arrived at McDonald's within 45 days, I had uh, received the support of the board. I had been in front of the board and put uh, down a vision for the future of convenience powered by technology. So the what we're trying to accomplish proceeded very quickly. Within two months, we were able to craft in and get it supported. It took the next three years to actually mobilize the organization, solve those next levels of detailed problems, get it to market and get the customer experience moving in the right direction. So it really is all about the collaboration. That's where I thought that I need to document this in some type of methodology. I love the idea of moving into purposeful innovation now. I think that's such an important thing. And one of the things that we're finding quite a bit is coming out of the pandemic, right? We're finding leaders that are really struggling with how to work and that purposeful innovation. 
with just simply the number of tools and work environments that they're having to juggle. What are your thoughts on or recommendations to leaders on thinking about solving that challenge and really getting to that purposeful innovation and maybe even simplifying some of the tool stack like you did at MGM when you rolled out the new technology organization? Ariel, I think that's a great question. That's really the question of the moment. And I think a little bit embedded in your question is this type of war between employer and employees around hybrid work and time in the office, et cetera. And part of the control reaction of organizations is that they actually don't have a workflow for what they do. That is actually the root cause of things. Because if we had a workflow, and I define that as what is the path? Where are we? What is next? What comes after that? How does it eventually get us to a milestone, like a decision point where we're going to say yes or no, we're going to buy in or not. If there was actually a transparent workflow, organizations would be less control oriented around their employees. This is the shift that I think progressive leaders will make because rather than saying, oh, I need to you know, see you face to face around this conference table very frequently, they're comfortable with other ways of collaborating because they know that they can actually see where are we, what's the progress, uh, what are the contributions. So I think workflow is going to become critically important. In my space, it relates to innovation, like a workflow for innovation or solving hard problems. It shouldn't be unstructured where it's, okay, we form the team and come back in one month with your recommendations. That's not good enough. You need to actually understand put in place a workflow so you can see if the contribution is a good one and happening at the right pace. Your book, Decision Sprint, it seems not, I'm, I'm going to reveal my biases here as somebody with a design background, but I'm curious if there are parallels between what you're doing with the book, which is addressing these big unknowns. And if you have to look at something like a design sprint, that's a factor there too. You have these ambiguous problems that you're trying to deal with. And I know the methodology is very different, but do you see these two things as complementary to each other or did you take inspiration for it or what's the story there? I've thought a lot about design thinking and I think it's still very important. It's very useful for accelerating progress. I do think it has some limitations, which is why I introduced decision sprint and I'll talk about that. But ultimately I think they work in a certain sequence. So the main gaps that I see in design thinking are one is inclusivity. Because whether it's my time at Amazon or having even 2,000 person organizations, technology oriented in in, uh, Fortune 500 companies, design thinking is is something that's embraced by product people, designers, engineers, that kind of um, functional areas, they get it. But what about the rest of the organization? What about compliance and, and marketing and operations? I found less of a the language translated for more of the organization. And so when I talk about inclusivity, I'm saying that in order for us to get through the ambiguity of an idea, not have blind spots, we need input from the right people in the organization. And so we need a methodology that I believe is more neutral, less specific to the forward-looking creative technology crowd, which loves design thinking. And so Decision Sprint tries to to offer that a way to have input and provide the contribution regardless of where you sit in the organization. So I think that's one thing. The, the second difference is that design thinking is, of course, in a good way about 
try things, learn, modify, and that loop, which I was a huge proponent of. That's literally probably my first pitch to the board of McDonald's and Volvo's, let's get going in this way by prototyping, for example. That being said, we do hear from many product leaders that, hey, they supported me on the prototype and then my project stalled. And why is that? It's because the company has more questions that cannot be answered by a prototype. And so we need, in my view, a way of innovating where the input is you know, more inclusive of the right people in the organization, more neutral than I think design thinking offers. So it's a little bit different. And what I offer to do that is a way to build and run explorations, which are maybe your higher level strategy and strategic direction. And I do think design thinking complements that, but maybe as a second step, perhaps. That, that makes a lot of sense. One critique, like super valid critique I see of design thinking is very related to what you said is it's around execution. The front end is great. We've got a lot of great ideas here. We even got some great prototypes, but then you go through a design sprint or you're even working on a project for an extended period and you're working your way up through higher and higher fidelity prototypes, but then it just get the project gets killed or sidelined. And this even happens in the class I teach at Stanford where it's called implementation and the students are supposed to come with, out with something in the real world by the end. But we see the ones that get derailed just get stuck in this loop of talking to users and maybe not building and not executing on something that you could actually ship outside of your own little team. <laughs> There's a lot of space for a good complement to the process. We're going to take it beyond just idea generation and maybe helping to align teams, but actually get something that ships to the world in the end. And I love design thing. I think everything is trying to um, you know, compensate for something that's not right in the world. So when it first hit the scene, we were in a very bad situation in companies where they made perfect plans and were totally waterfall and that really sucked and then nothing got done. So we gave this liberty to, for people to just start building and learning, which where you do learn, but I'm talking about learning capital L. And I think that is beyond prototyping. I think the intellectual capital in your organization is often there, but it's not tapped which is why I love the topic of this podcast around collaboration, because it's like, back to what Ariel was saying, is like, how do we actually tap the collective intelligence of this organization to help us avoid blind spots or factor in the right considerations? If you run an exploration, for example, in the way I'm describing in the book, and then you prototype, now that's a killer package because it's gonna be more bulletproof when you take it up the chain, so to speak, they will see it with the prototype, which is always powerful, right? Because that's seeing is believing. But then the poking of the holes, you will have done a much better job of being able to put sound recommendations on the table. Yeah, and, and I, I love what you talk about too in the book about bringing the cross-functional teams together and to really avoid the, the blind spots there. And also really doing the upstream work like you speak to, I guess one of the questions as I was thinking through a lot of that is what advice would you give to leaders who really want to implement the concepts, really work on that inclusivity and the upstream work and thinking, but struggle with like their day-to-day -day work, right? That struggle to get the organization to, to take a pause and make sure you have the time, you create the time and the space to do that. It really is about what you just said around creating space expectations wise, 
I was always comfortable as a leader saying, okay, if we've got the big meeting in the month, then let's have a couple of interactions. When it, our first interaction will be very raw. We won't have any answers. And we also will not rush to any judgment. We're not in solutioning mode. We're just trying to surface all the questions, the unknowns, and make sure we, we don't dis discover something later that we could have discovered right now. That's really all you can do, but you need to create a space for that. And so getting to first base might be for a leader to create a, a fair expectation for the team that if they took a week and created a great question list organized by subject matter and shared that and say, are we missing anything? And they got enough you know, input from the brains in the company that is actually progress in and of itself. And they haven't even taken a crack at trying to answer those questions or collect the data to answer those questions, right? And then once they do that, they haven't even gotten to the point of saying, okay, what conclusions are we drawing based on our, our exploration or a good job of this discovery work? And they haven't even done that, but that's okay. Now we know in most organizations because of a lot of different reasons, that whole spectrum of things I just talked about can be jammed into one meeting, which doesn't make any sense. Yes. Um, so again, coming back to a workflow, a, a leader can simply say, let's do this in three steps. The first one will be very raw around canvassing the problem uh, with the right questions. The second one will be, let's see what your exploration, when you got to the bottom of some of these questions, how, how you thought about it. And then maybe your third one is, okay, now we stand on good information. What recommendations make sense? I, mean, I think yeah. if you just flow it out that way, that could be a quick way to do that. And you don't need any consultants or even software to do that, right? You can just, just do that by how you operate the meeting. And do you have any ideas or recommendations for folks that might be more individual contributors that would want to drive that maybe aren't sitting in that leadership position on how to work it into their the processes of their teams? Yeah, 100%, because I believe that team level up is a great way to drive change in the organization. And the reason I believe that is because generally the check-in points with sponsors of projects are infrequent. There's every two weeks or something. In the middle, they're not really involved with how are you, what is your day-to-day -day work in investigating the thing and, and doing the research or whatever you want to call it, right? The deep dives, the brainstorms. There is where your liberty is. Now you can do it the old way, which is very unstructured. Oh, we'll have two deep dives and brainstorm. And hopefully we covered everything we need to, and it's synthesized and we feel strong about what we're going <clears> to <throat> recommend. Or you can, as a project lead on a team, get the, the core working team, three, four or five people to say, Hey, here's a few steps that we're going to take. We're going to source the right questions. We're going to spend some time uh, deep diving on these questions. We're going to produce an FAQ. Uh, we're going to then take that and look at what kind of conclusions we should be drawing on that kind of flow, which is all part of decision sprint. The outputs of those things is what you take to sponsors. So I think you have liberty in between your interactions higher up in the company, and that's where you can put in place these workflows. Right now, AI and machine learning are having this huge impact on the way that we're interacting with technology and it's opening up all these opportunities and some amount of challenges too, along with that. I'm wondering how you're thinking about implementing these tools through Decision Sprint or even throughout an organization 
what are some of the things that leaders can think about as they bring these types of tools into their workflows? I think it's the tip of the iceberg. And so we can talk about some far further out use cases, which are uh, maybe not that far out, but just let's take Gen AI for a moment. I think it is very possible to do things like, let's say you had a, a meaningful problem. You've organized four or five people to go figure it out, so to speak. And you say, hey, let's come up with all the right questions we should be looking at to really explore this thing. Okay, great. Even if with some raw input from just these four or five people, Gen AI can help complement and provide other questions you may be missing. And I don't think it's going to do a good job in, in and of itself. So I'm not talking about replacing the knowledge worker. I, I fundamentally believe we are going to have a renaissance around the knowledge worker. It's just going to be very different and we're going to have to upskill a lot. But if you gave raw input from the brains of people who have experience, know the company, know the industry, know their function, Gen AI can really speed things up because it's going to give you related questions that maybe you missed and you're going to feel like, okay, that was helpful. So that's one thing. Now, let's say you have questions you're trying to produce answers. Gen AI can help you improve the quality of those answers to say, you just made a statement. Do you actually have evidence? <laughs> and Maybe there's a data source in your company that you can pull in. So when you're producing content to create understanding, alignment, drive decisions in your company, Gen AI can help improve your content, point out misconsiderations, even things which I believe are going to happen. Like you're making a statement that doesn't have evidence. How logical is the deduction you're making? It can speed all of those things up. I'm working on those areas personally through a software company I created with my co-founder is called Ritual. But I think this is going to be available through a whole bunch of capabilities that people are now building and knowledge work is going to be really different in the future. But besides making sure that there's a combination of the Gen AI and the knowledge worker and having them be additive to each other, are there other risks or things that you are thinking about looking ahead that you would suggest leaders keep an eye out as they're leveraging some of the capabilities there? 100% Ariel, because basically it's now a race for the enterprise AI stack. And I know that means a lot of different things to different people. There's this old term for those of us who are old enough, knowledge management, but I think it's resurgent because you're going to need your own point LLMs to your own data set. And I think it's much more than just taking every email and PowerPoint and throwing it into some repository and then pointing an LLM at that. I think that knowledge needs to be structured and curated. Decision Sprint, by the way, it helps structure that at some atomic levels. So it's going to be easier to use it for very interesting things in the future. But for example, if you said, how do we feel about privacy or customer data, or what do we know about this aspect of, you know, these things, you need to be able to quickly make that available to your knowledge workers. And you can only do that if you have the official sort of FAQ or reviewed knowledge that the company holds and believes, and is still current available to tap into. I know that sounds a little far out there, but what I'm saying is that the proprietary knowledge of a company 
is going to become much more important. And therefore, we need a technology stack that actually begins to provide that because it's not going to be in the public internet. That's not differentiation. And you don't want to, sorry to my friends at McKinsey. Oh, McKinsey did it with 10 companies in our industry. Let's ask them what the answer is because that's going to cost you $5 million. So you need to start building your own knowledge enterprise AI stack where the current knowledge is readily available. Yeah, that makes sense. As companies build these proprietary large language models and and other tools, how do you still think about bringing people together so that there aren't essentially silos where one organization is using one set of tools and another is using a different one and the sharing of knowledge is, is more transparent? That's a great question, Eli. I think we'll need new roles in companies like knowledge curators. I know it sounds massive, but let's just say for the top five things of the company, right? Where they're like, okay, what is the working team? What is the technology environment they're using? What is the software? Where does the knowledge live? That's not in people's heads, but actually in software. And then how do we make sure that what they're producing, right? Because they're trying to go from ambiguity, we have no idea what to do, to recommendations, to action plans, etc. Where are those things living? Are they current? So you might have, tell me all the five things we believe about this important initiative. And maybe it's accurate today, but six months from now, is that still our stance on those matters? I think there could be knowledge curators who make sure that it really reflects how the organization is thinking at the moment. And we'll, we'll probably need roles for that. We'll certainly need some software as well. I think that ties back just to the very beginning of what you said too, about having those processes within the organization and the steps for people to follow that creates that trust that enables teams to really work in their most effective manner. One question, and this might be a little bit hard to summarize, but if you could think through the one most powerful step or the one first step that you would recommend people take from decision sprint is there one thing that you would recommend i would say we all know that when you're working on something meaningful teams are collaborating for weeks if not months right sometimes quarters (laughs) if we just took three days and created three days of space for people to independently suggest questions that should be part of an exploration let's just say it's a brand new idea The problem statement is something like, hey, what does good look like for McDonald's when it comes to delivery or McDonald's when it comes to improving order accuracy in the drive-through? Something like that, right? That's an issue. We've made it a priority. If you give people just two or even three days to independently suggest questions and then bring it together, you're going to see a lot of power in that. The independence is great because of obvious reasons, right? You're going to be surprised by what your colleagues came up with in a a good way, I think. And then it's not too hard to condense that into organizing that by subject matter. And now you've essentially canvassed your problem statement. I always, as a leader of, of people, if someone gave that to me as a document with no answers, no conclusions, no recommendations, and no decisions, my confidence level would actually be really good at that point in the stage of of the initiative, because I feel like we're starting off on the right foot. 
So as we come close to wrapping up here, I wonder what's inspiring you right now. Are there any books, movies, podcasts that you're finding especially helpful or, or inspiring at the moment? Of course, if you watch Mission Impossible, AI is the enemy. So it's that's timely. I'm reading a book. It's a little bit of a tragic book because we know that Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, wrote Delivering Happiness. And now there's a book about, it's, it's called, I forgot the name, but it's got happiness in there. So it's like a little bit of a, a pun, but it's really about the other side of success, which is more on the mental health side, because I think that's the dominant issue of our time. And when it comes to collaboration, in order for us to do our best work, we need to, we need to be in the right um, state of mind. I think that's a broad issue when it comes to organizations and companies. I think part of what I'm trying to do and motivated with Decision Sprint is when you allow people to do their best work and make a contribution and that contribution actually counts, you are actually encouraging mental health because the number one thing people want, I think, at work is to feel understood and, and appreciated for what their contribution is. And contribution doesn't have to be, oh, you're just a creative genius. You could be the person who pokes holes in a constructive way, not a not an anti-progress way. And that's a form of contribution, right? Or you can just be a person who helps make ideas better by bringing in some details that matter. So I think if we can get collaboration in a way where basically it's not non-bureaucratic and it's less political, it's more neutral, it's more where the ideas speak for themselves, that's going to be good for mental health. So yeah, the books like that is what I'm into these days. Fantastic. Adif, where can people find your book? So my website is decisionsprint.com and you can get a free preview of the book and then have links to all the retailers where it would, would sell the book. And then you can also reach me on LinkedIn and I have a newsletter that is one of LinkedIn's top 50 there. And I read my LinkedIn. So if there's anything burning question you have, feel free to reach out. Adif, thanks so much for being on the Future of Collaboration. I really enjoyed joining both of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Excited to take some of the tactical things from the book and put it into play. At Envision, we're obsessed with helping teams do their best work together. With Freehand's intelligent canvas and smart workflows, teams are already working to maximize their productivity and remove all of those hurdles and silos that seem to stop us focusing on the real work. With Freehand AI, we're excited to help teams go further. You can reclaim all that time spent synthesizing brainstorms and messy work plans and focus on making impactful decisions. With a single click, you can summarize your ideas and bring teammates up to speed or take all of those great ideas and create a schedule of work. Take brainstorms and turn them into briefs. Or analyze sentiment, helping you read between the lines. To unlock true productivity, everyone on the team must be able to engage. That's why we're focused on making Freehand the easiest to use visual collaboration platform, where Canvas connectors allow you to create and fine tune AI prompts to fit your team's workflow. And templates allow you to flexibly deploy AI enabled workflows across your teams. 
And at 50% the price of Miro and Mural, your entire organization can benefit from the productivity gains that AI introduces. It's time to supercharge your team's workflow. Try Freehand AI on Freehand at freehandapp.com.